and welcome back to the Champagne Rugby Podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by Joe Gray. Joe, how are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. Thank you for having me. No worries. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. So, for the, the listeners that are out there that aren't familiar with Joe Gray, can you just give us a bit of a background on what who you are, what you do, and uh, what you're doing currently? Yep, so uh, Joe Gray was a hooker, mainly known for playing at Harlequins. I had a 16-year professional career. I started at Northampton Saints uh, from sort of 1718, uh, where I got picked up in the academy there, and then had several years in Northampton Saints, and I went over to Harlequins when Conor O'Shea came in, um, and I, I had a good stint of eight years at Harlequins. Then I went over to Saracens for two years, uh, and then I came back to Harlequins for my last two years. Um, so really enjoyed um, my rugby career, been really fortunate to play for some incredible clubs, and then I was lucky enough to be in the England mix for three or four years, and I, and I got a cap against New Zealand at Eden Park. So uh, a little bit on me, and then I've also set up um, my own business with my partner Lottie, uh, it's about three years old now, called Maya Master, which is a sports recovery business. And I've been a passionate coach throughout my career. Uh, and I also do coaching now as well. So, so you've got quite a full-on rugby CV there. How, how did you kind of get into rugby in the first place? And what, what kind of got you into Harlequins um, from Northampton? Yeah, so I um, started at age eight, like fell in love with the game, went and watched my brother. So I'm from Nottingham, uh, played for Nottingham club through the age of eight through the minis and juniors till I was 17 um didn't play rugby at school just totally club uh went to comprehensive school that didn't play but absolutely loved it fell in love with the game uh was lucky enough to get through some trial systems and I managed to do England under 16s representative then I played England 18s while I was 16 uh but I didn't have a club and I was at camp and they were basically like oh you're all associated with Leicester Tigers or Harlequins or all these different clubs. So um, when you go back to your clubs and I put my hand up and said I'm with nobody, already played age group, played a year young. Um, and they were like, oh, you should have been picked up. But I hadn't. So my dad was really proactive and he went out at the time. The internet wasn't uh, incredibly resourceful. So he went out and bought a book with all the clubs on. We wrote a rugby CV, handwritten and sent it out to all 12 premiership clubs at the time. I got two trials, uh, one at, Northampton Saints and one at Harlequins and got offered a contract from both, but I was from Nottingham and the Saints contract um, was just closer to home for basically the same. So I could commute a bit early on and then I moved down there. So um, that was sort of the start of me getting into rugby. And then, um, yeah, I was lucky enough to sort of live out my boyhood dream of become a professional rugby player. So at the time, was Saints in the Premiership or were they... Um, so that was your first Prem club was with the Saints? Yep, so I joined in the era of Carlos Spencer, Mark Robinson, Bruce O'Hana, Steve Thompson, Ben Cohen, like a ridiculous team. So that was my first year, but I uh, was, throughout my career, plagued with injury, hence why I set up a sports recovery company. Uh, but my, I basically got offered my, sport, offered my professional contract on a Thursday, best day of my life, passed my driving test, drove to Northampton, had been on trial, got offered a pro contract, the writing up over the weekend, they'd send it me Monday to sign. On the Saturday, I played in a cup match and had an horrific knee injury where my foot was under my armpit, dislocated my knee. So I did everything you could possibly do in your knee, like all four ligaments, meniscus, cartilage, the works. Almost got it amputated because the artery had bent round fully with my shin and everything that went under my under my arm. So uh, it, was a, it was a horrific one. I was in hospital for about uh, five weeks, on crutches for about seven months, learning to walk again. was lucky enough that on the NHS, I had a really good surgeon that managed to fix it all correctly. And I was out for about 20 months. Um, and then I managed to get back and my season back was um, basically when Saints dropped down to the champ. So I actually played a lot of rugby as well behind Dylan Hartley. Um, so that was sort of me getting back into it. But yeah, I was lucky to to come back from an horrific start. Damn. So you were then playing a bit of championship rugby and then did you guys get promoted again back into the uh, yeah. premiership as well? That's yeah, so we went. I'm pretty sure we went undefeated um, in all comps. So we went through and got back promoted. Um, then I played in the Prem for the following season or so behind Dylan. But I did basically, I had a year of no contracts. I was coaching a school to get paid so that I could rehab and stay around Saints. Then I had a year in the academy. Then I had two years first team at Northampton Saints. Um, and then I realised I was behind Dylan and I was getting 10, 15 minutes off the bench each week. Yeah. And I was 20, 19, 20. And I wanted to progress and, and be as good as I could. So um, I started to look around different clubs um, and Connor had seen me play for England 20s. He'd basically seen me in like, 
an unbelievable match. I played unbelievably well. So he spotted me in that game. Uh, had a had a meeting when he took over at Quinns, and he said, uh, "I think you'd fit into what we're trying to do here." So I moved, and after the first few months, so it's October time, so about six weeks to start a season, I managed to find my way in, and then I started twenty nine games that season. We won the Challenge Cup, and the following season, we won the Premiership. Um, yeah. And it was a move for me to come down to London, experience how Quinns do it, and it was totally different to what I'd been doing at Saints, where it was Dorian West, real old school Leicester. We're gonna fight, and we're gonna do topless mauling, and I mean, I'm a bit of a community. I can do a bit of all of it, so I could do it, but it wasn't my natural way of playing. Whereas then I went to Quinns and all of a sudden it was like forwards over here. And I was like, oh God, topless mauling and a bit of scrapping. And then we were practicing offloading as we fall to the floor and how we're going to hang it up out the backhand for the wingers to come onto. And I was like, wow, this is a different world. So <laughs> yeah. We've had a few of the Quinns boys on from that period. So we had Nick Evans, we had uh, Hugo Monnier. It's that whole um, period was like the golden era for a lot of the boys, especially, like you said, winning the Premiership, winning the Challenge Cup as well. Like That was a really good team. And, yeah. and I imagine you had quite a few nice, good, good yeah. memories of a lot of those boys. Unbelievable memories. And I mean, the 2011 was incredible because we came together all quite young. So I was one of the younger ones, but like Chris Robshaw was a year or two above, Danny Kerr, like we were all similar age. So... We we're all in that age where we loved our rugby, but also enjoyed a night out. So um, when we had good wins, we had a hell of a night out to celebrate them as well. Um, and actually, 2012, when we won the Prem, we I think we still hold the record. It was the most games undefeated in a row. I think we were 14 in all comps. So if you imagine a quite young squad who worked really hard in the week and then you go 14 un unbeaten, it's pretty much 14 nights out every week for a chunk. And it was a, that was an unbelievable season. That was That is up there with my best rugby memories ever. Doing that season, being the first Quinns team to get through to a final, do the walk over to Twickenham and then to win the win the final against the favourites Leicester. Um, with that squad and that group, we were together for a long time. Um, yeah, it's incredible. We still do reunions now and we have a 2012 WhatsApp group and it's just a great group. So. Oh man, it sounds, it sounds legendary. I, I love to hear all of the sort of, is there any sort of stories that you can share from that golden period? <laughs> probably not for a podcast but there was a lot of um a lot of good memories a lot of good times we had some some incredible incredible uh wins along the way so we beat Toulouse away and broke their record I think got 48 wins at home or something incredible and then we went to Munster and beat them in Thurman Park the season before which was uh they hadn't been beaten in 10 years only once before by Tigers in the in Europe so we had some incredible wins at the sort of against the odds for the group we were but I just say about that group like on and off the pitch was incredible. But the reason it was incredible was definitely culture-led from Conor O'Shea. And we weren't the best team in the world on paper, but if someone missed the tackle, someone would have covered their arse and go and get it. So that actual tight-knit squad was was incredibly strong in that period. Um, and, and I have to say, all the successful teams I've been in, it's been down to a culture with some unbelievable players. Don't get me wrong, Nick Evans, Danny Kerr, unbelievable. Chris Robshaw, they're amazing players. But the culture that you build and then bonds you get really go a long way. How how did your time at Northampton differ from when you were at Harlequins? So I definitely went into Northampton. Um, I went into Northampton basically when I was injured and Rob Hunter and Ali Heifer, the two Exeter coaches, were my academy coaches and they were unbelievable. Supported me through my knee injury, got me into the club as soon as I was out of the NHS care and looked after me. So I was in debt to them. They were incredible coaches. But also in that period, um, Jim Mallinder and Dorian West came in as the two coaches. And as I said, it was a bit more of an older school approach and a bit of Leicester, especially in the forwards. Um, and Dorian West and myself didn't see the best eye to eye in the style I played. Um, so it was a little bit different. And I was also always seen as a young academy player. So I was the young academy lad, Joe, I was the young academy lad. So I, I only realised that really when I moved, even though I've been in the first team for a couple of years at Saints, I've still seen as young grades of the ACAD so when I moved and all of a sudden that tag of being an ACAD player that's why I'm not playing because I'm young all of a sudden disappeared and I played a load of rugby started even though I was 21 uh, started every week in the Prem and played a load of huge games and um, age all of a sudden disappeared because I didn't have that academy tag so I'd say that was a massive differentiator um, in it. So. Yeah and then you obviously when you are moving into Harlequins like you said you've got that club culture that it was just it was just unbelievable at the time. When, when you were injured, though, kind of talk us through that experience. 20 months out of the game and not 
being able to do much. That must at, at a young age as well, of like twenty years, twenty years old. That must have been okay. really difficult. Seventeen. Seventeen. Seventeen when it when it happened. Yeah. Um. So it was a uh, yeah. It was tough. I mean, when I went into the hospital and saw all the specialists, and then they saw all the scans, and they'd seen my leg how it was, and they were like, "You're not going to be playing sport again, and you're probably not going to run again if we can save the leg." Was was pretty shocking to hear when you just been offered a pro contract which you've worked for since you were nine or ten um but I, i'd definitely say one thing i've always had is um a real high work ethic and a real strong resilience to sort of issues so I, I, after the initial shock of it i just said they don't actually know who i am or what i can do um i fought against odds to find myself a contract and, and play at these different levels when i've not had the easiest route to it so i just took it as a huge challenge so um, firstly, they said, oh, you'll walk with a limp and you'll, you'll struggle to ever run again. So then first thing I was doing was I was in the physio every day in the hospital for eight months, learning to walk again without a limp and then learning to strengthen it. And then uh, once I got out of there, I was straight to Saints and learning to um, build up to be able to run again. Then once I could run, I could join in with certain bits and change the direction. And it was just always ticking off a little hurdle at a time to then get me back to this major point and the main main thing that was really tough was they did a strength test on like both your quads and hamstrings on basically a leg curl but it's computerized and they said you need it within five percent of your good leg to be able to play rugby again that's what we'll give you um if you ever get to that then you can do it so i had to test that and the first time i tested it after about a year it was like 400 percent weaker and i had to get within five percent and i was just like wow this is a <laughs> this is a bit of a shock but um yeah worked really hard to get it within that and as soon as i did then, then I played a bit of a sketchy first game. I was a bit nervous. Um, the psychological side probably more worried about doing it again. But once I got that first game under my belt, then all of a sudden I was in and and started playing regularly. And it just the thought of it disappeared, and you, you move on. So, what what advice would you have for players that kind of do go through injury and um, have had like a life changing sort of um, injury occur to them? And what what would you say to these? to these young lads and lasses that are playing rugby? I'd definitely say um, it's up to you what you want to do. So doctors can give you their advice. And the doctors told me I, I wouldn't play and and um, it'd be stupid to play again. But I didn't, I wanted to play. That was ultimately all I wanted to do. But some people out there, if they have a major injury like that, will be like, I don't want to risk that again. I don't want to go through this again. I'm lucky to, to be able to walk or run. So it definitely depends what you deep down want to do. But... Also, remember, they're just human beings. So the doctor is just a doctor giving you his advice. And that's exactly what it is, advice. So um, once I started building strength, I was totally aware that I'd get back and play rugby and I didn't expect anything else of myself. So um, just give yourself smaller targets. If I'd have gone from day one, I'm going to play rugby in nine months' time, it, it's an unrealistic target. So what I said was I need to get walking again. I need to walk without a limp and without crutches. Then I need to build some strength into it so that I can get running. And when I'm running, I can start to build in some curve runs and change direction. Then once I've done that, I can build more strength to get into some landing and contact. And I had probably six week windows of what I was doing. And then when you do that, it breaks down and becomes more achievable than just the end goal of I need to play rugby again. So definitely make smaller goals to reach that massive goal at the end. I can see you're clearly a very mind strong person that is very driven and determined. And I can imagine there's quite a lot that you've picked up along the way in terms of having the right mindset and being able to tackle problems with consistency and stoicism in a way. What are some little things that you do that you think um, some uh, like other young rugby players could implement to get that mental fortitude in the um, day today? The huge one for me was... Um like self-talk so I was terrible when I was young like if it started raining the day before a game as a hooker I'd be terrified if I threw poorly what would the game be like would I cost us the win would coaches think I'm rubbish all this stuff that I'd start to picture in my head the night before and then I'd sleep awful before a game and then I'd go out and play and it'd never be as bad as I think it was um or I'd play quite well but I basically managed to teach myself especially after the knee injury I had I was lucky I in the bed next to me in the NHS was a psychologist so I met him a few times when we got out of hospital and he went through a few like picture scenarios a picture in the incident and then like breaking it down in your head to it just an image rather than the whole 
thing where you're picturing it and your heart rate flies up and it's terrifying. So I was quite lucky to meet him quite early on. But then the self-talk piece was huge. That every time I'd have a negative thought of something, I'd just quickly change it in my mind to something positive that I could do in that game. So I'm going to make a massive tackle and I'm going to work extremely hard and I'm going to do a nice carry. And I started to just really build in that self-talk and imagery around it. And I have to say now that is one of my super strengths. I just try and self-talk to myself positively as much as possible on a daily basis. And I think that really builds up your self-worth and your self-confidence. Um, and even though you'll make mistakes and make errors, um, that's how you learn and then ultimately build yourself up to to really give yourself the best chance. So a lot of positive self-talk, a lot of positive imagery. And do you think that you kind of matured mentally quicker than normal people because of that injury that you went to through? Or do you think this mental maturity and fortitude came later on or was there sort of a certain time when you thought that you had kind of figured it out in a way uh i'd probably say when i turned about 16 i was pretty stubborn anyway as a kid so when i wanted to do something i'd learn how to do it even if i wasn't very good i'd, I'd practice and practice and practice and i'd definitely say that's <laughs> what i did throughout my rugby career um i practiced extremely hard so for instance line out throwing i wasn't the best line out thrower. i wasn't the best rugby player but i worked really hard and i used to go down the park for an hour every night after school and throw a lamppost. And I'd do it every night for an hour. My mates would be like, come to the park, we're going to play football or come and have a beer. And I'd be like, I've got to throw for an hour, then I'm free and I'll do whatever. But I, I was quite stubborn in terms of if I wanted to be good at something, I knew it meant I had to practice. And my dad gave me a great bit of advice when I was under 16s in England. We got an outrageous training program with every day and every session you had to do. And it was outrageous um, for like a four month period before the games. And I was like, oh, it's way too much. There's loads on this. And my dad just said, like, don't live your life wondering what if. He said, what if you don't do that and you don't make it? Will you regret it? And will you think, what if I'd have actually done that program and gave it a crack? Because he goes, ultimately, if you do the program and you don't make it, at least you did everything they told you to and you gave yourself the best chance. So I did the program every day, as it said I would. I threw every day. Um, and I made the squad and I got through. But they actually put a hands up. Like, honestly, who did, followed the program? It was a big program. And I realised I was the only one that put my hand up that had followed it, like, day to day out of that whole group and I was like oh actually that's a real advantage if I have this mindset of like don't live your life wondering what if so I was very disciplined I worked really hard to to get to where I did um I was called J2O Joe for, for a long period through my youth uh till I got to Quinns and started winning and playing regularly then I started to enjoy that then moments but yeah J2O Joe was a nickname for a bit <laughs> I can I can understand why I can understand why was your dad quite a big influence then for you growing up and even today yeah, mum and dad were, were huge influences. They drove us around. Um, I've got a brother and a sister, and they took us everywhere. They gave us an experience of everything, some music, art, sport. Um, and funnily enough, my sister got first in an arts degree. My brother was an unbelievable uh, musician, and I was a sportsman. But we got exposed to all of it. And I think what they always wanted us to do was um, find a passion that we enjoyed and we, we loved. It didn't matter what it was. Mine happened to be rugby. Um, and mum and dad came along for the journey. They came to every game. Um, until I was about 30, 29, 30. Um, if it was in France, if it was in Ireland, they'd get the train across, they'd make a weekend of it and they'd book it off work. But they were huge support. And um, yeah, my dad was renowned for incredible advice. So he wasn't the best with his own advice, but he was very good at giving it. So he gave me great advice um, throughout my career at many points. It's always good to have a, a solid chap like that in your corner, especially... Yeah. I mean, it will be a reflect. It's been a reflection of your career, and I imagine of your siblings as well, which is always uh, a testament to the parents as well in many ways. Yeah. And then you you got injured when you were seventeen, but obviously that wasn't the only injury that you would have experienced in no. in your career. So I've had about fifteen operations. That was the first. Uh, I've had two shoulder ops each side. I've had more knee operations. I've had two discs in my neck, thumbs and hands. Uh, an eye operation like so had quite a lot of stuff um throughout my career but um it sadly is part of the game even more so as a forward you're in the physical mix of of more scrums big collisions into big heavy men much bigger than me um but it, i do actually think that builds that resilience piece as well because once you get back from one then you get another you actually learn um different ways to deal with it and then get back again and you try and use the time out to make yourself better with skills whether it be fitness strength passing, catching, throwing, um, and you try and utilise that time to get back because ultimately it happens to everybody in the sport. Um, it's just trying to maximise your time and hope you don't get a 
as many as I did, but you hope you don't get as many. I can imagine you've learned quite a bit about the body by now as well. A lot about the body, a lot. <laughs> and then, so from Harlequins, you then got picked up with England, like you said, for a match in Eden Park 2014. I remember watching that at the time. I was in, it was in London playing along. It was the game when Carl Eastmond and uh, Tuolangi were in the centres and yeah, had yeah. Alan Yard and on the wing. Exactly, and lost in the last minute from a pick and go in the corner. Yeah. Uh, ben, Morgan, ben Morgan had a really good game that game as well, I remember. And Freddie Burns played awesome as well and kicked everything. Yeah, yeah it was a, that was the game. So yeah, I was in the England mix for a few years. Um, so from 2010-11 when I came to Harlequins, at the end of that season I got into the Saxons and played the Churchill Cup. And um, then 2012, after the Prem, I played some uh, Saxons throughout that season, went into some England camps, and then I went on the tour to South Africa. And I didn't get um, didn't get capped. I did midweek on cap games again, um, bar bars, different things like that. And then the Autumn International, I actually got selected to be in the squad and unfortunately got, a, got another injury. And I was out for eight weeks with a big tear down my abdominal. So I couldn't play for eight weeks. And it was for the whole period of that tournament uh so yeah sadly didn't get capped then david pace got a few more um which is a bit bit frustrating but i know lots of people have happened to um and then carried on plugging away was in the mix quite a lot but again struggling to get a cap and then thankfully went to new zealand 2014 uh and played the first test at eden park um i managed to come on my first impact was uh tackling mccaw then it was uh scrimmaging against um kevin Milamu, who who's like one of my boyhood like idols and I was like this is incredible at Eden Park watching the hacker I was like what what was it like how did you kind of feel before the game you like with the hacker and everything the tension Eden Park as well renowned all black stadium yeah it was packed as well and they're all doing the hacker in the crowd with it so it was echoing around um with fireworks going it's it's incredible it's as you could imagine like literally ridiculous feeling um I was extremely nervous but I'd also done quite a lot of uncapped games of about 10 or 11 uncapped games so I'd done quite a lot of being on the edge of it so I was nervous because I was getting my opportunity finally but I was also quite confident in my own ability that I'd been close to it for a long time and really knocking at the door so another game except for the moments you realise first kick off I ran and tackled Richie McCall and you're like wow that is a cool experience so <laughs> one of the best greatest players of all time for sure um, but yeah no I had a had a great tour um, really enjoyed it and uh, yeah something that will live with me forever what's what's tour like when you're it's your first England tour did you have to do any sort of uh, initiations or anything the first one was South Africa and I had to do like you tell a joke and sing a song and all all the good stuff you normally do uh, but I was lucky that both tours had James Haskell on it who I knew through through rugby for many years anyway but he is a great person to have on a long tour for sort of four or five weeks because he's just you can't shut him up he's at the front with a microphone telling your stories that you might have heard three times, but he is unbelievable at the delivery of them. So he makes it much better. And then, uh, as you can imagine, through your rugby career, you have your Harlequins group, then you have lads you might have played 16s, 18s, 20s with. So um, Corbazero and Good and different people I played with, Jordan Turner-Hull and, and them lot throughout my younger years. Um, so then they're now on tour, so you're catching up with lads you've known for a long time. So um, it's just a really great environment and everyone's extremely excited um, to be there all together, sort of, living out your dream I think Husk is probably his first career as an entertainer and his second career as a rugby player yeah exactly he loved showing that whenever he was on tour he grabbed the mic and take control of all the situations as you can imagine kick the coaches off and have a players bus and then just destroy them when they're on the other bus so he's very very funny I can imagine yeah I, I, I imagine it was a good lad to have around and uh, even on that uh, New Zealand tour as well that, that you've got a good at that time for England, it was a, a young bunch of lads. Yeah. With a, everyone's got the similar goal in mind. And, and Harlequins was a big part of that team because you had Rob Shaw, Kerr, Mike Brown, all these boys that kind of were in the golden era of, let's say, the 2012 team and got that experience. Nine. I think there was about nine selected. So it was like Marla, myself. Uh, I think yeah. George Robson was in. There was Rob Shaw. There was Nick Easter. Um, Danny Kerr, Nick Evans, Hugo Monier, Brown, George Lowe, Jordan Turner Hall. There was a big collection of us, which also made it awesome because they were my close friends that all of a sudden you're going away with to, to represent England, which was, yeah, amazing. 
do you still keep in touch with many of the boys? Are they still around sort of the Twickenham sort of yeah. Hampton yeah, some, area? Some have moved back home, so like Ollie Coma back to Bristol and James Johnson's over in France playing still. Um, so a few moved away, but the majority are still sort of London-based and we um, always have a sort of catch-up once a year at least. We generally do a couple of year where we do a reunion and most of the lads try and get there if they can. And then it's just like any um, old rugby reunion, lots of stories, lots of piss-taking um, and a load of beers. So always good fun. I can imagine, I can imagine. But you didn't just do all of your career at Harlequins. You, you took a stint at Saracens, kind of talk us through that a little bit. That's an interesting story as well. So um, I basically had uh, another injury. So I was playing at Quinn's uh, second game of the season, played Gloucester, first play tackled a hard, punched his knee, and I thought I'd disgate my thumb. So it was like pointing the wrong way. So I punched it back in, ran to line out. As I threw it, popped back out, and I was like crunching it back in again. Um, but it was when Catrachillis, the 10 from South Africa, actually broke his um, Adam's apple. So all the physios ran on to deal with him and I'm in the background, my thumb like the opposite direction. So I basically self-strapped it in the corner of the pitch while they were getting the stretches and stuff. And I played the whole game and then when I came off, it had broken clean through. So it wasn't dislocated; it was just broken bones swinging in and out. Um, but I managed to get through the game, which was great, but then it was going to be six to eight weeks out, eight weeks realistically. We got to five weeks and and the club, basically the coaches said, we really need you, Grazer. We're playing Wasps in the Heineken Cup. Um and they've got a good set piece, we need you to play. So would you strap it and play? The specialist said it should be fine. So I said, as I've done many times in my career, yeah, I'll strap it up and play. First tackle, I tackle Ashley Johnson, do my thumb again. Uh, had to have it operated on and missed a chunk of the season. And then my, it was my contract year, and I was talking to quite a lot of clubs about possibly going abroad and different things. And then they just all came back and said, oh, he's very injury prone. He's been out, been out a lot with injury. So I actually finished the season. Even Quinn's at the time, it was Graham Roundtree who became a coach with John Kingston. He said, oh, you've been injury prone this year. So um, we're going to probably keep the hookers we've got and not keep you on, even though I'd started every time I was fit, which was really frustrating. But I basically finished the season without a contract. Didn't have a contract. So I was ringing around trying to find clubs with my agent. Um, no one was available. No one was really looking. So I did my own pre-season for about seven weeks on a park, running, running at, uh, throwing at a rugby post. And then... One of my friends just said, why, why don't you just ring Sarries? You've heard they have an injury to Hooker, so I'd heard that. But they said, oh, we're holding out to see if he's fit. So I just managed to get Mark McCall's number. I'd never spoke to him. And I just gave him a phone call and said, mate, can I come and train with you for free? I don't don't need to be paid. I'll just show you what I do. You're missing a Hooker anyway who's injured, so I can just fill his spot in line-out training and things. And it'll keep me fit and ready to go. Um, and if you want me, happy days. If you don't, it's done me a solid by keeping me um, match fit and ready to go for when a club might might need me. So he was great. Spoke to coach. I said, "Yes, come in. You can come and train. We can't pay you, but you can come and do everything Savvy would do." So I went. Did four weeks. Thoroughly enjoyed it. It was an incredible club, like incredible environment. Loved playing. Um, but they couldn't offer me a contract, so I got an injury cover at Saints for six weeks. Went and did that, and then at the end of the fifth week, I got a call from Savvy saying the injuries happened. He's redone it. He's got to retire. Sadly, do you want him for the rest of the year? So I signed for that year and about five months later, won the double with Saris playing in the Champions Cup final. Um, and yeah, just an incredible turnaround from six months four, not having a club and thinking that's the end of the road to um, to winning the double and finishing. Thankfully, my collection of trophies I hadn't won was the Champions Cup. So managed to complete the set, which was uh, yeah incredible. Then I re-signed for another year. Um, and then I came back to Queens after that um, due to injury injury issues here. So, so for, the, for the listeners that, aren't aware joe is actually the only um professional player in history to have won every trophy in the top two tiers of english rugby which includes the european trophies as well so um that's quite a that is quite the rugby cv to to have on yeah, your very, very lucky actually so uh, I always, I always back down by saying there are lots of good players in the area who won the champions cup and premiership but not that many that have done the Challenge Cup, the LV Cup, the Championship, the BNI. Um, so I've managed to to be across a load of teams that have done a lot of incredible stuff. So um, yeah, I was I was really proud, really proud to do that um, Champions Cup because I never thought I'd get that um, with Saris and my, my dad. My dad was uh, tearful at the end of that game, and he was the one who actually said it. He said, "No one else has done that. You've just completed the set." So that was incredible. It's kind of like you know when you say 
oh fifa i've completed it mate it's kind of like for joe english rugby yeah i've completed it mate yeah i got outdone though uh, by vincent Cox. so he he just won the world cup and he completed basically everything so international oh, yeah? won it all and then done champions cup and premiership that season and they're like you're incredible he was a joke that season so yeah definitely uh, better <laughs> but not quite the full English set. That's not the full that's... English lot. Not English in Europe. They're not. No, no, no. That's, he hasn't. Yeah. He hasn't got all of them quite yet. But who who knows? Maybe he gets relegated. And well, yeah, exactly. was he with Saracens? Was he? He was. So there could have been a couple of Saris who did it, but they didn't win the um, Challenge Cup. They lost in the final. Ah, that's yeah. a shame. That's Kept a shame. It alive. Kept it alive. Yeah, got to keep that keep that going. But that would have been that would probably be one of the only ones where you. would because they got relegated for um, yeah. tax reasons. <laughs> yeah. They, um, uh, yeah, they were, the, they were the only ones. So there were a few in there that would have been in the mixer and then they, um, yeah, they lost the Challenge Cup. So, yeah. Didn't have you, were in a, you were in a good position there because in that 2018 period when you came in, you were, you, they were in very good form and you would have been training with a lot of the boys like, uh, that were just coming up, like Mario Toje, you had Farrell's hitting a lot of form. Like, kind of, what was that experience like coming in the mixer, having just played eight years at Harlequins? Yeah, it was amazing. Obviously, there was a really strong rivalry between Quins and Saris. And going in, I was a little bit nervous of how that would be. Like, obviously, it's a huge, huge rivalry. And I went in, and Jackson Ray, first day, was, like, the nicest bloke I've ever met. Got me straight in, telling me what the calls were, introducing me to everyone. And um, straight away, I realised just how nice a culture they have there. Like, they work really hard on bringing people in, making them all settle. Uh, Will Skelton, first day, took me under his wing and got chatting and became unbelievably close friends with him. Um, but their squad was just ridiculous. Like, ridiculous squad. So, yeah. When you saw it and you just started training with it, you realised the standard they trained at, the intensity they trained at. Mako and Billy running at you, it was basically full goop. Like, if you tap their bum, they run through, so you have to chop them and get strapped up for a game each session. But it was short and sharp, but it was intense. Um, and I definitely think it... Uh, we sort of generated my game and got me playing at a high standard, high standard again because of just the level they operate at. Um, and then luckily for me, the coaches had belief in, in me towards the back end of the season when it counted. Um, yeah. And set piece was really important against Munster and Leinster and them teams. So, so gave me the nod over some other unbelievably um, good players in my position. Yeah. I mean, you did well. I, I, and how do you think, all of that experience then has led you to now what you're doing now with starting Mayo, the the sports recovery company. Yeah, so Mayo Master Sports Recovery Company actually started in like 2018, 19, the end of that season when I was out of my thumb and I didn't have a contract. Um, I had really bad Achilles tendonitis. So I'd had a special treatment where they basically whack your Achilles called Shockwave, which is really expensive. Had it done and it helped loads. So when I went home, um, I knew I didn't have it for another week or so. I was actually using a jigsaw and I welded a stool leg and put it on the end of my jigsaw and started using it. And the mechanism was identical to what I just had in, in a posh clinic. So I started using it, felt incredible, took it into training. As you can imagine, 60 lads, bright yellow jigsaw, loud as anything, destroyed me. Uh, went out, did my running injury, came back and heard it a mile off. And then all the lads were using it. And before I knew it, they're pulling cash out of the wallet. Carl Sinclair was my first customer, bought it off me that day. Um, and then I told about seven by the end of the week. And that was a little seed of my master. Like, oh, there might be something here that we could create to help people sort of self-treat. I was also conscious I didn't have a contract. I wouldn't have physio every day. So I was like, oh, I could use this on my back where I have issues and different things. Um, and then my wife is a is a businesswoman. So she literally sat down and said, I run marathons. I do CrossFit. I get injured all the time. I don't know any of the stuff you know from 13 years at that point of pro rugby. Um we should make a company that just educates people on how to look after their bodies better so they can do it for longer, but also some of these tools you get access to and you start to create. So that was sort of the seed of my master took about a year or so developing the product and trying to get it to where we wanted it. And then we launched um, a few years ago, we've been about three years or so now. Um, and now we're at Wimbledon currently for the tennis with their recovery partner. We've done like um, the likes of Premier League football clubs loads. We do England rugby, we do Team GB, we've got, PGA Tour talking currently about recovery. So it's, it's blown up and gone incredibly well. But um, yeah, I've been really lucky to sort of get that on the side. And then I also coached from the early days. So I coached from when I did my knee. That's when I started coaching. I did it throughout my career. 
I was really passionate to always stay in rugby if I can because I absolutely loved it my whole life. So being in that environment, I wanted to try and stay in if I could. It's it becomes a part of who you are, the sport that you've dedicated your whole life to. Yeah. And where so you you've started Maya Master for three years now. Yeah, properly. What's what's the long term goal now? So you've you've gained traction, you're in Wimbledon. You've grown it to an incredible position where it is. With where you're at now, where do you want to be? And what do you think is holding you back from getting there? So we're at a really exciting stage. So we've grown um, incredibly well over the last sort of two, three years. And um, we've been really lucky that basically I'm a, I was a pro athlete and I basically do product development. And I fully believe that the products we developed are the best in their class on the market, hands down. So where we've been really lucky is that the likes of Premier League football clubs hear about the product and then they buy it offers and then that reach hits players and players buy offers, then Wimbledon hear about us and they want us for the for the recovery hub and things. So it's scaled really well just through word of mouth. Um, we're now at a point where sales are going really well and we're starting to grow. We're still only UK-based. Um, so I think in the future, we'll look to, to branch out a little bit um, into some new territories, but also our product offering. Um, we're currently looking into soft, where we've just been backed by Google. So we just had investment from Google um, to help with the software element, which will hopefully uh, be a bit of a physio in your pocket that helps you with injury and recovery around your day-to-day exercise. Um, so it's really exciting where we're going. We hope that it grows into the the home of sports recovery has been our day one goal. So not only we're not going to just shove you a product and sell you one, that's the last thing you want to do. If a product can help you do what you love for longer, then get it by all means but also just educational stuff to help you do what you love for longer whether that's body weight stretching or recovery protocols from ice baths to cool downs to to everything so yeah the aim is home sports recovery with the best um with the best tech to go alongside it it's uh, honestly it sounds incredible I, i'm very excited for the company um and mm. seeing where it could go yeah no it's really exciting stage and really exciting time for us so um yeah we're loving it at the minute it's very busy but um busy is always good and are you guys going to be involved with the Rugby World Cup at all? Uh, so we've sold into a few countries. So they have our products um, at the World Cup. So as I mentioned, we would be in a few others. A few other nations have our products, which um, which they have currently. And then I've been lucky enough to get approached a few months ago to help uh, coach the World Cup squad. So England men's, I'm currently doing specialist coaching throwing. So I'm in camp um, currently helping them prep for the World Cup, which is incredible for my coaching journey as well to go alongside uh my business so yeah it's cool how's how's the preparation looking uh, yeah good they're working incredibly hard um they're an unbelievable group like the players england have access to is is incredible um and i'm very lucky that i'm working with some really exciting hookers so jamie george i played with at saracens and know how much of a world-class operator he is he's he's an incredible talent but then you have also like the youngsters like theo dan who was actually the first year a cab when i was at saris and then he's burst on the scene this year um which he, he's amazing. You've got Jack Walker, who's been at Quinn's again with myself, who's an incredible player. Um, so there's lots of lots of good hookers that I'm getting to work with. But then you look at the quality of, of the nines. You've got Danny Kerr back in the mix with Ben Youngs. You've got Owen Fowl, Ford, Marcus Smith. You've got Manu. You've got the back three is just ridiculous. There's like unbelievable from Max Mullins to Caden Murley to there's just people everywhere. So I think wingling down the squad to the to the amount they need for the World Cup, we've got to think lose another 10 is going to be really tough. Um, they're, they're all fighting for, for every position, but I think it's really exciting. I think the history of, of English rugby and World Cups is is amazing. So there's been a lot of finals. We won it in 2003. Um, we generally do pretty well in, in World Cups, fingers crossed. Um, and there's been a good chunk of time for Steve to sort of get the lads on page with what he wants to do. Um, so fingers crossed it can be a good World Cup for England. Do you think he's had enough time to mould into the position as head coach? I think he's a good head coach. I think having been in the England squad for a long time previously, then experienced it at Leicester. Um, and if you actually look at the Leicester time he was there, in the first season, if it wasn't COVID, they would have been relegated. The next season, they won the Premiership. Yeah. So if it was a normal season, you would have been in the champ. The following season, they win the Premiership. So it shows that it does take time to implement your game plan to get the squad on page with you. Um, and I'm just hoping he's had long enough pre-World Cup to do that because the Six Nations was sort of a baptism of fire, get in and, and you're in the mix straight away, whereas he's got a bit of time to implement that. And and um, he's an incredible coach. He's got unbelievable um, detail. He's got great coaching staff around him. 
Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful he's had enough time, but only time will, will really tell on that on that point. And it's a big ask for him. He's came in with short notice to to run a squad into the World Cup for the biggest challenge in rugby. So um, it is a short period of time, but hopefully the, the chunk before the World Cup is, is long enough for him to implement what he wants to. 100%. All, all the best of luck to these guys because there's a lot of pressure, especially from the media, on on the players, but also on the coaches because a lot of the media kind of blames the different coaches for uh, results and everyone was like, oh, we want the results, we want the results. But they don't know what, what, what the hard work they go through, the boys and the team and all the back-end stuff, like yourself now. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I think that's a big one in terms of coaching. Like, it's a weird one because if the team lose or underperform, the coach gets hammered. But if the team win, the coach gets praised, and you sort of understand that as a as a head coach and as a coach when you go into that role, you you learn that pretty quick that it's a performance based business. But as I said to you earlier in this conversation, I think the the most successful teams I've ever been in is the best culture, and culture takes time to build. It's not an overnight thing, so you have to give people time to build the culture, build what they want off the field as much as on on it and then people buy into your plan and your vision um and i have to say in my career i think conor o'shea's been the best i've ever experienced with it he came in in 2010 11 um with, with a mindset of we'll live and die by the sword we're going to play a queen's way and then he built went into the history of the club and how they played a flamboyant style back in the day as harlequins and had kiwis come over and he really built a sort of foundation under how we play and then he said, we'll play like this. And if we win or lose, that's how we're doing it. And I'll take the blame. And it was a really incredible situation to be in. And it's definitely something I've taken on board that I'm now head coach of London Scottish, which I'm very fortunate to do alongside everything else in the championship. And it's something I feel is really important is to build that culture, build that understanding and that belief in what we're doing as a group. You're, how do you find time to balance all of this? Head coach of London Scottish, <laughs> hooker co- line, line-out coach for England. Running the business with your partner uh, for Mayo, you must be uh, a, an excellent time manager, or just have a very good personal assistant. Yeah, very busy. I have to say that the wife Lottie is is incredible. She's CEO of My Master. She runs out on a day to day, and I I help where needed. But she she's definitely got the reins on the business, and she's an incredible businesswoman. Um, and then the coaching side is I'm really passionate about it, and I really enjoy it. So um, the London Scottish slash Charlie Quinn's role I'm really enjoying in the England role I, I got approached a few months ago and it's it's once in a lifetime sort of opportunity to get to get in the mix and experience what I'm experiencing currently is just invaluable for me as a person for the business for my understanding of high performance environments but also for my coaching um, and then taking back some some nuggets I learned along the way to my coaching in the championships I think you've summed it up well it's all about passion and purpose yeah totally agree so we're just going to finish up now with some sort of fan questions that the fans have sent in in the last um, hour or so. And um, we'll go kind of quick fire on those, if that sounds good, um, that the fans have sent in. And then um, we'll finish up there. So the first the first question is, well, it's quite an obvious one. What's your predictions for the Rugby World Cup? Um, obviously, it's going to be a tough, tough World Cup. South Africa... I've got the east of a squad and they are a tough team to beat as all the best ones are. They have an all-round game of kicking, can attack with their quick quick backs. Um, I do think England will will do well. I think France are incredible. I think Ireland um, are doing well. So I think it'll be really tough, really tough World Cup. But I think for spectators, it'll be incredible because there's lots of good performing teams and there'll be a couple of underdogs who, who come through and do better than, better than people think. But I do, I hope England can go all the way and win. I think... Um, it's, it's due. We obviously have been to final a lot and we've got one win, uh, but it'd be great to go that one step further. But I do think, as always, New Zealand, South Africa will be really tough, really tough to beat. Okay, so so you're saying New Zealand? I'm actually saying, I think South Africa, actually. South uh, Africa? Yeah. Okay, guys, you heard it here first from Joe Gray. He believes South Africa is going to win. England, <laughs> England first. If England don't, South Africa. All right. The, the next question I've just come up with from the top of my head. Um, if England win, how are you celebrating? Oh, I do not know. It will be, uh, yeah, it will be a big one. I can tell you that if, if they win, it will be incredible. Um, so we'll just have to wait and see. I'm pretty sure it'd be 
be pretty incredible. I was a young lad in 2003, so I was 16. Um, I might be younger, actually, 15. Uh, and I remember that. I remember people going down to London. I remember the parades. I remember all the rugby clubs doing the World Cup tour. So it would just be incredible for the sport. Um, and I think there's a time, especially for us in the Premiership currently and in England, um, Wales and the UK, I think bringing a World Cup back would be huge for the sport currently because it's going through a, a tough time. So. And it's close. It's only in Europe. It's in France. It's just across the train. Yeah, yeah. So it'd be, yeah, it'd be incredible if we could do it. And I think it'd be, be unbelievable for the sport. Um, the next fan question comes in from Mateos. He would like to know who is the toughest player you've ever played against. Oh, it's a good question. Um, I have to say, I only played against him once. I think, but playing with him and seeing what he did to other people as well was Will Skelton is just an absolute beast of a man. So like, I was lucky enough to play with him a load, so I saw what he could do, but he weighed 150 plus kilograms, six foot six, uh, powerhouse, faster than you think as well, specially made boots. They're like size 19. He had to get specially molded and made, um, but he was just an absolute beast, an unbelievable player when I was at Southampton. So played against him um, once, but he is a, a monster and I'd probably say he's the toughest to try and take down and try and manage on a pitch. He'll destroy them all be an absolute steam train in the scrum when he's behind the other side or behind you. And then his carrying ability is ridiculous as well. Fair enough. Spencer yeah. Nelson would like to know, you've got to choose your dream front front forwards. Um, greatest of all the, of all time, who, who are you picking? Your, your hooker. I'm a hooker. So my, I do it with who I've played with as well because I play with some yeah. incredible, incredible players, but... I'd have to say Tom Smith, as a young lad, being Northampton Saints, he was unbelievable, do said. Like, not only his scrimmaging ability, he was a really good scrimmager, but he'd drop into fly half and do a dummy switch and a miss pass. And he just, you wouldn't expect it. He had his big shin pads on. He spoke really quietly. And, um, yeah, he was he was an unbelievable loose head and an absolute legend. Um, so Tom Smith would be my loose head. And then in terms of tight head, who would I have as my... Uh, all time. I've played with you and Murray over the years. I've played with obviously Carl Sinclair and, and lots of people, but um, probably my favourite, and he's really underrated um, tight head. But Will Collier is just a penalty machine when it comes to scrums. Like he just eats up pens and a man after my own heart that I love a set piece. So we used to call ourselves the Jigsaws. We just sort of slotted in well together. And, um, and did some did some work over the years. So I'd say he's scrummaging with Collier. I think he is world quality and, and not had the sort of um, the, the career he probably should have had international, but he's an unbelievable player. And then for the second rows and back rows? Second row, I would have uh, Will Skelton. He is like the heaviest, strongest man I've ever seen in the scrum. And um, yeah, as I just mentioned, an unbelievable rugby player. As we've all seen, he's gone to La Rochelle, he's carving up. Did it at Saris, he's just a beast of a man. Um, then in terms of five, I'd probably go um again, I'd go probably a little bit off the card, but I'd say George Cruz is just an all-round exceptionally good rugby player. But where he's different to an Atoji or someone, he doesn't have one really standout thing other than his line-out calling. And again, as a line-out operator, he was unbelievable to throw to, he knew a line out really well and put you in great position. But he actually playing with him and watching him did everything to the highest standard, but never really got the plaudits for it. But you don't get that many caps for England and both lines and stuff. You're not unbelievable. But I think he's under underrated as well over the years. But he um, he's an unbelievable player. Yeah. And then back row. Back row, Chris Robshaw, and he'd be my captain again every day of the week. So he was um, yeah, an absolute unbelievable player. Top the carries, top the tackles. Led by example, unbelievable bloke, work workhorse, winning everything, fitness wise. So he'd be my uh, he'd be my seven. In yep. terms of my six, would be Mo Fasabalu, okay. the old days, the old era in 2012 time. Um, he was just an absolute freak. He'd snap people in two. And I remember playing Munster. Barley, their hooker, would overthrow basically every throw. He'd land in his hands the tail gunner, and he'd just run over Odar, and Odar was losing his mind, screaming at Barley, "Whatever you do, don't." Overthrow it, kept overthrowing it. He, he's gone over the top of him, but he was came from rugby league, unbelievable player. Um, and then eight, it has to be 
Nick Easter, so it'll be a full Quinn's back row. But in his prime, I've never seen Nate like it. He could he could read a game better than anyone. He'd be stood in the position miles wide, and he'd be like, work, work, Nick T. And then the ball would come out three phases later and he'd score and he'd laugh with his deep trouble. He'd go, hey, 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 you need to know where the game is. And he, he, he knew what he knew the play way before everyone else. So he was um, incredible. The final question we ask all the podcast guests is if there was one um, player that you would like to see on the podcast, who would it be and why? That's uh, a good question. Um, I'm always intrigued by, um, he, he's my idol growing up, but Johnny Wilkinson, whenever I hear him talk, I think he's extremely interesting. I think it's incredible his sort of mindset on his career. Um, it's diff- totally different to mine. Like I love my career. I'm I didn't um, have all the thoughts he did throughout his career and the panic and anxiety wrapped around it. But I always think it's very interesting to to listen to. And um, I was a huge Johnny Wilson fan, obviously that era of winning the World Cup. Uh, but even before that, the Six Nations stuff, I had Johnny Wilson, the perfect 10. I had all them bits. and He was a massive influence for me on my career. I threw it at a lamppost for an hour every night because I watched the DVD and he kicked every day um, to get the best he could be at. So he was a huge influence. And I always loved hearing his stories and his... Um, his sort of journey. So, yeah, I'd love to see Wilco would be a class guest to have on, that's for sure. Awesome. And finally, where, where can where can the uh, podcast listeners find you on Instagram and anything you want to plug? Yeah, no, so um, on Instagram, it's at joegray underscore two. Um, and then in terms of My Masters, my company is just at My Master. You can see all the products, but we currently have a range of about 10 to 12 now all the way from ice baths, cold water immersion to massages to compression, uh, lots of different things in there. Um, but yeah, we'll just follow along. I generally try and share as much of my journey as I can. As we've spoke about, I'm spinning a few plates currently, so I try and share it and, and let people see what I'm up to. So. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure, Joe. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation and um, look forward to catching up soon, I'm sure. Um, thank you very much. And thank you to the listeners that listening out there. I uh, hope you've enjoyed this episode and we'll uh, catch you next week. Cheers. Thanks very much.